Hi, friend. Welcome to episode 36 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. Today, I talk with Heller Theater's playwright-in-residence, David Blakely. Sally Pal podcast host, Sally Adams. Every week I talk to people about creating original work for a live audience. Send an email anytime to sally at sallypal.com. Your ideas keep great conversations coming every week. Check out sallypal.com slash join for a cool free theater resource. It's never too late to sign up to have access to the creator's notebook inserts. I'm interested in knowing what creators need as a performing arts resource. If there are things you want included in the Creator's Notebook, let me know by sending an email to sally at sallypal.com. I read them all. Thanks, Hannah. Be sure and listen until the end of this interview for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. I've known David Blakely since I was 15 years old. I was a theater club member at Tulsa Memorial High School. Shout out to my mask and gavel buddies. And in the intervening years, David got a law degree from Duke University and an MFA from the University of Iowa. Now, 40 years later, David is the playwright-in-residence for Tulsa's only all-original works company, Heller Theater, or HTC. He's also a playwriting professor at Rogers State University. David Blakely is a prolific playwright, with performances of his works in various locations around the country at any one time. Most recently, he's been in rehearsal at HTC for his one act, Four Ways to Die. The play is based on Dennis McAuliffe's 1990 nonfiction, The Deaths of Sybil Bolton. Four Ways to Die follows a journalist uncovering what exactly happened to his grandmother during the systematic reign of terror that killed dozens of Osage people in the 1920s. The play features Steve Barker from Episode 17. The play can be seen at the Tulsa Nightingale Theater April 6th and 7th and April 13th and 14th, 2018 at 7.30 p.m. If you're anywhere in the Tulsa area, I highly recommend seeing this work. It's even got Dennis McAuliffe's seal of approval. For information on this and other original works, as well as the second Sunday serials, visit, all one word, Heller Theater with an R-E, co.com. We discussed David's work, For Your Examination, in which he and his co-writer, Anna Hudson, gathered monologues from homeless Oklahomans. We also talked about Francis Ford Coppola, Samuel Beckett, P.D.Q. Bach, and O. Calcutta. In addition, we mentioned Ernie Kovacs and Saturday Night Live. And we talked about language, including the use of American Sign Language in theater. We also discussed Will Inman's play, The Lesbian Exhibit. Storytelling was at the heart of our conversation. Be sure and listen until the end of the interview for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Let's get started.
Welcome to Sally Pal, David Blakely. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I haven't talked to you since you've become the playwright in residence at Heller, but everybody is saying you're doing a bang up job. What's going on? Gosh, um, uh, sitting in my room writing a lot all by myself. Heller Theater decided this season that they were going to do all original work. Last season, they did a production of my play. The like fantastic. I have written one since then that is is going up as a one act in April with Heller. It's a part of a triple feature. It is a little over fifty minutes, probably closer to an hour, and it is a play about the Osage murders in the nineteen twenties. It is an adaptation of Denny McAuliffe's book he wrote in nineteen ninety four. And I've been talking to him. He is going to actually come and see it. He's very happy with how I've been treating it with some care. And I have a good cast. I think it's going to be a bang-up show. How is it different for you to be a playwright in residence where you have several projects down the line scheduled as opposed to being a playwright with a single piece that you have to worry about? I think that one of the purposes of a playwright in residence, one purpose is that the theater helps to nurture the playwright. That's, mm-hmm. I think, the purpose of the playwright in residence. The other purpose is for the playwright to interact with the community. And so last year I did a class on basic ideas of playwriting. This year I did a class on serial writing, and I did that in connection to a project that Heller has going up called Second Sunday Serials. Every month, they have five playwrights give 10-minute readings that end with a cliffhanger of sorts. And the audience will vote three to move forward and two to be left behind. We add another two playwrights into the mix, and the next month, we have another five going. How do you avoid the difficulty of having your new playwrights be an exposition competing against playwrights that are mid-story? I will say that we've had a number of playwrights that have moved forward three times. Somewhere along the lines, they were number one when there were other people doing stuff. Right. And it's just sort of the power of their writing and what the audience likes. Do you find that mentoring other playwrights has changed your writing? I I know you're a college professor, so you've actually done this before. This is not your first rodeo. Well, I I spent last week in Texas. The uh, Kennedy Center American College Theater Regional Festival was there and uh, met up with one of the people whose writing I really, really like. When he was going to school, I would see his plays and comment on his plays and tell him what I liked about them. He has since gone on. He's now teaching playwriting. And just by happenstance, we almost just like fell in a hole and discovered that they had time to do a reading of one of my plays. And so we did. We did a reading of this Osage murder play. And I asked the fellow who I mentored if he would give me advice. Oh, wonderful. And the advice that he gave me was really quite good. I thought it was it was wonderful. And I think it's because I sort of trust him, trust his writing, trust mm-hmm. that he, you know, his worldview. And, and those kinds of connections, I think, are good between mentor and mentee, if you will. I know my son has really been so grateful for your mentorship. He talks about it from time to time. Just knowing that you have a good mentor 
is so super valuable and you have never shied away from that. And strangely enough, we had been friends a long, long time with a big chunk out of the middle when we were in different parts of the country. But I can remember being a sophomore in high school when you were a senior in the drama program and you were so encouraging to all of us and not just in acting, but in writing as well. So you were writing way back when. I can remember one in particular that just makes me laugh because you all would write these these uh, avant-garde one acts that took all of about four seconds to perform <laughs> where someone would walk, <laughs> someone would walk on stage, flip on a light and walk away. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that was it. <laughs> we are, we were uh, inspired by a short play by Samuel Beckett. Samuel Beckett, people might know from Waiting for Godot and Endgame and those things. He also <laughs> has a very short play called Breath in a larger piece called O Calcutta. Oh, no. I know Calcutta. <laughs> yes. O Calcutta is a play that everybody who's connected with it agrees has absolutely no artistic value. That was <laughs> what they were trying to do. Right. That's, who, that's what Sam Shepard was trying to do when he did his part with it. And John Lennon and Samuel Beckett and PDQ Bach. Richard, Richard Shickley is his name. And he was in the pit running the band for O Calcutta when it opened up, playing songs that he wrote and playing songs that John Lennon wrote, among others. But it was all intended as sort of a parody of, of art? The idea was that let's see if we can do something that has absolutely no artistic... So it's a, I think it's a really great idea or uh, an experiment for an artist to say, I would like to take the art out of my art, and what am I left with? And how successful do you think they were? Uh, you know, I think it's still performed today. For the longest time, it was the longest-running show on Broadway, I think. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's a curiosity piece. You know, there's yeah. a whole lot of nudity and a whole lot of language in it, and a whole lot of talk about sex for no other reason than to talk about sex. Uh, and I believe Peter Shickley's song that he added to it was, why don't we do it? And I believe okay. that's also the entire lyric of the song. <laughs> that's marvelous. <laughs> what do you think is the value for artists working today in pushing against what's expected? Because I do see artists attempting to do things experimentally. First off, I think it's great. I'll talk about artists in general. I think of playwrights, and even actors and designers and directors as having a vision or voice. And we're in strange times in which vision and voice of the past doesn't necessarily apply to today. And having young voices come up, perhaps not understanding just how far we've moved away from past designs and structures and patterns and they can find their own patterns and their own voice. I think that's wonderful. You know, when I first started this podcast, it was encouraging people to write original things for, for a live audience. Yeah. I started out by distinguishing stage versus live audience, and now I've taken stage out of the equation because I think there are plenty of people doing digital works for a live audience. Yes. Francis Ford Coppola, I think, he has a history in stage work. Yeah. When he was going to university... He would direct anything that needed to be directed. If somebody had a had a scene for their acting class, he'd direct it. He would just do anything. And he has this idea now of having what is called 
uh, like a live feed film. Oh. That, you know, you get a screen or, I don't know, 1,200 screens up the, in, in the United States, and then for one night, they'll film it. But that first night is going to be absolutely live broadcast. Wow. That could be very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I used to do it all the time. Yeah. Well, sure. Or, I think of Ernie Kovacs. Exactly. Saturday Night Live still is done live. How important is it for a playwright to be able to play with language and beyond that to be able to understand linguistic nuance and maybe even speak more than one language? And I include ASL in that. Uh, if you're able to speak more than one language, which I am not, I am completely <laughs> incapable of even speaking English coherently. But there are people who actually speak other languages besides English and sometimes have multiple languages. And one of the things about language is that it changes how you think. When, yeah. when, you, when you think in Spanish or Farsi or Tagalog, uh, these are languages, obviously obscure languages, the last one. And, of course, Klingon, let's not forget. Well, I was wondering when that was going to come into the equation. Each of the languages are brought about in different contexts for different things, right? And so yeah. when you think in a language that is not your own, I think you you enlarge your thought processes. I've been watching some of the work of Deaf West Theater. There are several actors who joined Deaf West not knowing ASL at all, and they said it's completely expanded their ability to express themselves on stage. Yes. There's actually a, a wonderful play that is both in ASL and English, and it's called Love Person. And if you do those signs for love and person, that is putting your arms across your chest, that's love, and mm -hmm. person is just bringing your hands down along a body, that is sign language for lover. And that seems like it would be very sensual. Yes, and it's just such a love, and, and the, the play itself is really, really opening up in those terms of, of how, and then it uses yet another language, they text. Have I heard that you are doing anything with texting in any of your pieces? I have thought about texting. I, I think that, that, that that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I seem to recall, we might have just had a conversation about it, because you've been playing with form for a long time. I have. There was a production of a, a Shakespeare play, and I don't know which play it was, but one of the things that they did is they took all of the, not the soliloquies, but the assigns to the audience, of which mm -hmm. there were many, and the actors didn't do them. They text messaged <laughs> the audience that. Oh, my God, that's so great. Yeah, I think that that's very fun. I, personally, I have this idea. One day I'm going to take myself up on this threat. I tell my actors, you know, you need to get the audience's attention in order to tell the story. And when they don't do it, I'm going to hand out flashlights to the audience and tell them that they should shine the light on whatever they think is interesting. Oh, that's a cool idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, except when they're like looking at the chandelier or the light switch or their purse <laughs> instead of the stage. Well, I guess that could be a little distracting. <laughs> guy over there. Do I know him? I was uh, lucky enough to be involved in something that you did that I thought was unique, and that's the uh, performance of monologues that were based on interviews with homeless people, not just based on, but verbatim. Yes. 
yeah. say a little more about how that project got going and how that was for you as a writer because you weren't actually coming up with the words. Right. It's called For Your Examination. The itinerant theater in Lake Charles, Louisiana is going to be doing a reading of it in May or June. Congratulations. That's great. I'm very excited about that. To my co-writer, Anna Hudson, who uh, also collected those transcripts, the, the, the interviews. We recorded them, we transcribed them, and then we had about 20. And then we sort of looked at them and we narrowed them down to, I think, eight. She took four, I took four, and we created three monologues for each of the people, or at least that was the idea. I think a couple of them we came up with two. And the reason for it, is to give voice to the people who have no voice. Right. To, to give an idea of what it's like to be on the street and to be ignored and how to live. Oh, it was such a compelling project. I agree. It was very changing for me. I am now much more interested in doing theater for social justice than I ever have been before. But once we got everything together, then I had to interview a social worker so we could help to put it in context as well. Mm -hmm. So we had nine voices in it. We had probably about 90 minutes worth of text, whittled down probably 20 hours of text to an hour and a half. As you can attest to, I was completely up in the air in terms of how it was going to go. We put it up in a gallery. There was a touchstone object that if somebody who was looking at the gallery came and looked at the object, that would spur the person who was playing the homeless person to talk. Right. I believe yours was, was a bar of soap. It was a bar of soap. I just stood there waiting for someone to come touch my bar of soap. It was really quite wonderful to see how it transformed people in the space. It transformed audience and actor, for sure. Yes, yes. Get my actors to anticipate any of a number of options that the audience might do, from running and screaming and calling a cop to mm -hmm. sitting there and listening. And mm -hmm. we did get a little bit of all of those things. I believe that you were hugged and told that you smell nice. Yes, it was a, it was fascinating and in character. It occurred to me that for someone to cross the boundary with me, while it was well intentioned, it felt patronizing. I mean, if I were that woman and I had just spoken about my problem being able to find soap and get clean, and then her reaction was to come and hug me and tell me I smell clean. It just felt odd. And yeah. then... So one of one of the actors got a twenty dollar bill from someone said, "Go buy yourself something." One was adopted by I'll call them crowns, the lovely African American women who wear their hats to Sunday services. Yes, yes. Three women just took one of our actors under their wing and was going to get him off the crack and followed him around. And finally, he had to disappear in order to get away because they were basically going to make sure for the rest of his life that he was going to be okay. I can't help but think that the way you took those actual words of, of real people and edited 20 hours down to 90 minutes, that just blows my mind. But that has something to do with how those people reacted because they were hearing the actual words and you were counting on the actors to get across whatever there was to get across. But it really starts with the text. And I think that because the text was so particular, as, as a playwright, I try to write voices for my characters, but that doesn't mean that I necessarily do it. Oh, it's one of the hardest things, I think. These voices were incredible. They were 
contrary. They had hope. They they spoke one thing, and then you realized as you listened to them for eight or nine minutes that it meant a completely different thing. Your character, for example, was a character who came to help her children care for their children, her grandchildren. And and she ended up being kicked out of the house of her children because she wasn't doing what they wanted her to do. She accused them of doing things. They accused her of doing things. But how she talked about her children was interesting. I would never have thought that, that a mother would talk about her own child that way, and yet she did. There's so much that we learn when we really listen to real people before we put pen to paper, which is why I think as you get older as a writer, that life experience informs your writing in a different way. Yeah, I agree with that. Although occasionally you come across a youngster with an old soul who seems to understand a lot more about life than I do. Hey, are you living backwards? You're 25. <laughs> How do you know that. this? Yeah. Did you start off as an 80-year-old, a 90-year-old? Well, speaking of, you have a couple of old souls living with you. Did you ever find that you were encouraging them to become playwrights, or did they just discover that on their own, your two sons? They're both performers. My oldest son, Quinn, is mm-hmm. one of the writers of the of that second Sunday serial we were talking about. He's getting ready to do his fifth. He has he has a run right now. That's great. He has a view of the world that is uniquely his own, which is I'm I'm very happy about. And I think that it's a lot more absurdist than mine is. And I mm-hmm. might add that you you have uh, two children who also write plays, and I know for a fact that your son has a more absurdist view, perhaps, than you do. Oh, he's definitely always been right at the edge. Sometimes I don't understand it, but I know it's something special, and I know you feel that way about Quinn. It's like, I don't always understand what you're trying to do, but I want to encourage that. Absolutely, and I think that those voices that I could never find, but that are out there in the world, I think they should be I don't think I can write in that voice, but I think that those voices are important. So I think it's important that Will write. I think it's important that Emily writes. I think it's important that my son Quinn writes. I think it's important that all of my students find the voice. It's a hard world out there, and it's even harder if you want to try to do it as a writer. But don't you think we need them now more than ever? I do. I mean, those people who are looking from the outside in. Yes. I don't know that we find comfort right now in listening to the old stories. I think that we hide from the world more than we find comfort. I don't know that that's where the world is going. I think I would agree with you. It's funny that you say that, David, because I've started to think more and more lately, especially after, you know, 30 years of teaching, that I feel like an elder in some ways. I'm not on the leading edge anymore, and I'm totally fine with that. I'm still an artist. I still am exploring and searching. But my role is changing, and I love that I am developing as an elder, like a a mentoring type of person, because I love supporting that. I love cheering them on. (laughs) It's probably one of my favorite things. I love cheering on young theater artists. I think that there's a danger that they're going to go away to some other thing. I know from watching you that you don't stop becoming an artist because you're cheering someone else on, and if anything, it probably feeds your own art. I do get inspired. I think that good work inspires good work. 
Sometimes bad work inspires good work. Oh, that's true, too. <laughs> a blind squirrel could do better than that. And I'm a blind squirrel, so I could try it. Well, you've written so many different kinds of things, you know, from the absurdist stuff that we were laughing about earlier, but you're very uh, compelling adult work. And you have that along with some of your one acts and the one that I know better than most of your works, which is the musical Hank the Cow Dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hank the Cow Dog. Bring a bunch of jokes together. And uh, maybe a little bit of stuff that all mothers will disapprove of, and you've got yourself a children's show. Oh, it's a wonderfully entertaining piece. I just love it. And I hear so many people talk about your one X, and they're very different from something like that. What has you try all these different styles out? You don't ever seem to get stuck in any one way of writing. I would like to think that the subject matter dictates the form. I'm very much of the architectural idea that form follows function. Okay. So my bathroom doesn't necessarily look like my living room or my kitchen. That's the first time I've heard it explained in that way, but it makes complete sense. Right. And so if I'm writing a play that is about grief and it's about people who have gone on before us, before their time, then that has a different structure than does a group of, of homeless people who are trying to find their way in the world and are completely lost. And I think that that's a different structure. And I will say, it used to be I would write pretty much a good old proscenium play, and I have stopped doing those because I think our audiences have changed. I don't think that audiences are going to sit there for two and a half hours watching a play. They're definitely changing what they want, and I think this 24-7 access to all kinds of entertainment, it's changing how people consume arts and entertainment, I think. Right, absolutely. With all of this in mind, what kind of advice do you give to your students, to your kids, to people who are starting out with a totally different palette? Usually what happens is that somebody comes up with an idea. And then when they flesh out that idea, that usually means that they're going to go in one direction from that idea. And what I try to get people to think about young, and when I say young, I mean new to playwriting, a six-year-old who has written their first play is a young playwright. I love that you see it that way, yeah. When they're getting the situation, to mine the situation for all of its potential. And mm -hmm. I don't always do that in my plays. Well, the play that you heard read, at that reading, someone said, well, what happened to the mother in the piece? And I went, yeah, what did happen to the mother in that piece? <laughs> she just disappeared. Yeah. And it was easier to have her disappear than have her come back and have to face the complications of coming back. Mm -hmm. That's a tough scene to write. And sometimes we don't like to write those things because they're tough and they're angry and they're all sorts of things that we should, those are the things that we should be tackling. Yeah, the complicated stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Your son, Will, wrote a play called The Lesbian Exhibit, is that right? Yeah, The Lesbian Exhibit. And he ended it in his first draft. There was a coupling of a student and a school nurse. Mm -hmm. And... They never meet again, and they never actually talk about the complications that happen with that. And I talked to Will, and I said, that's the hard scene, to have those two meet up again. He told me he didn't want to write that scene. That's what you did. You wrote a structure to that scene. Yes, he did. 
And then later on, I actually staged it. I know it was based on your advice because we talked about it. It was a tough and beautiful scene. Everybody who saw it was at the edge of their seat because no one wants to talk about that kind of stuff. And that you could hear a pin drop in the theater. And that's the kind of things that live theater does when two people are there talking about things that neither one of them want to talk about, and yet they have to talk about them. Everybody is riveted. Sometimes it's not talk. They have to do the thing that they didn't think that they could do together. Those are the things that I look for in plays. So just encourage young writers to address the hard stuff. Yeah. Don't stop your play with, well, I'm pregnant. (laughs) No, wait. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that the beginning of your play? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I have a friend who used to say that uh, when you add a character to the play, it's like adding a planet to a solar system. And its gravitational pull affects everything else in the solar system. So it's like, yeah, mom's pregnant. What does that mean for you, kiddo? What does that mean for dad? What does that mean for... For the milkman. Well, yeah, the milkman is really the one that we really want to know about. Yeah, he's there all the time. Somehow, he always shows up. Well, David, is there anything you can think of that we didn't get to cover? We didn't talk about politics or death or Or religion. Or religion. We skipped all of the good stuff. We didn't have the good conversations. Oh, yes, we did. We had a very good conversation. (laughs) It truly was. But we successfully avoided all the hard stuff. I actually am thrilled to be talking to you like this because I have such a fondness for you as a person over a long period of time. And whether or not we're close in age now, which we are, when I was in high school, we were not because... You know, that age gap means something. And I have looked up to you ever since. And so I really appreciate you taking time out to talk. I think it's great what you're doing here. I hope that I have said something that might help somebody else. That's the goal. And I know you have. Right now, what's uh, on my mind is my play about the Osage Indians. And it's called Four Ways to Die. Four Ways to Die. When does that go up? It goes up in April. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This has just been great. I love these conversations. They just make my day. (laughs) Well, you do a great job. I think that Sally Pal podcast is doing good work out there. Well, you're too kind. Thank you, dear. Well, we'll talk more again. But in the meantime, break a leg. Keep doing the cool, good stuff you're doing. And you too. It's a good fortune to you. Thank you, dear. Tell your family I said hey, okay? I will. It's time now for Concise Advice from the Interview, where I share bits of advice from my guest, playwright David Blakely. Number nine, nurture storytellers. Number eight, ask those you mentor to give advice in return. Number seven, don't be afraid to try new things. Number six, you have a vision and a voice, and it's important to discover yours. Number five, you need to get the audience's attention to tell the story. Number four, get inspired by supporting young artists. Number three, 
allow the subject matter to dictate the form of your work. Number two, mind situations and stories for all their potential. And the number one piece of advice from playwright David Blakely, allow your characters to face complicated issues. Write the tough scenes. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Check out the blog, sallypal.com, for articles and podcast episodes. You too can be a Sally Pal. Sign up for a free creator's notebook insert at sallypal.com slash join. Thank you for following, sharing, subscribing, reviewing, joining, and thank you for listening. Thanks to Hannah for emailing me. It was awesome to hear from you. Now, I have one bit of wisdom from my husband, George, the coolest guy on the planet. George, what's your wisdom for today? When you resist change, you never know what you're missing. Well said, George. Well said. Excellent advice indeed. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work or falling asleep to my oh-so-pleasant voice, like my sister does, let me know you're out there. I want you to pursue your dream and share your stories. Storytelling through plays, dances, music, and other types of performances is the most important thing we do as a culture. That's why I encourage you to share your stories because you're the only one with your particular point of view. And Sally Pal is here with resources, encouragement, and a growing community of storytellers. I want to help you tell your stories. All the stories ever expressed once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, go write that tough scene. think of more than four ways to die on a podcast. I'm going to get it right this time, I promise. I hate alliteration. I don't need to say all of that.